0: I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. If you're a Christian, you need to understand that sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your boss. You are no longer a slave to sin. When sin says jump, you don't have to ask how high. In fact, you don't even have to answer. And the reason sin is no longer your master is given to us in verse 14 of Romans chapter 6. It says, for sin shall not be master over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. Now, last week we talked about what it means when it says you are not under law. And we saw the ways that the New Testament pictures the law. The law is your ex-husband, and death has parted you so that he is no longer telling you what to do. The law is your elementary school teacher, and you're no longer under her authority. The law is your fleshly plan B. It's your surrogate slave woman. And like Abraham was told to do with Hagar, you're to get rid of her. The law is an unbearable yoke and you have been set free from it, so don't put yourself under that yoke again. The law is a dividing wall and Jesus has demolished it. The law is your canceled debt book. It has been nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. The law is a shadow. And you no longer need the shadow now that Jesus, the substance, has come. And the law is your old mirror that can show you your sin but can't do anything to take it away and can't do anything to transform you. You see, you no longer have any relationship to the law. You have been set free. You are no longer governed by rules and regulations. Instead, verse 14 says, you are under grace. Now this morning we want to explore what that means. What what does Paul mean when he says, you are under grace? Well, what is grace? Grace. You know, we sing about grace. We name our churches grace. We name our children grace. When we pray at meals, we call it saying grace. We talk about being under a grace period. We use that word, but I wonder whether we really understand what it means. Now, I'm not going to presume to tell you all there is to know about God's grace this morning because I am convinced that we will never know all there is to know about God's grace. But let me give you a working definition of grace. Grace is when God does something for you that you don't deserve and could never earn and can never repay. Grace is all that God does for us on the basis of the cross. Grace is the acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And I like that acronym because it's more than just clever. It's biblical. In 2 Corinthians 8-9 it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. God took his riches and gave them to you at Christ's expense. That's grace. Now this is a word that saturates the New Testament. In fact, it's used over 150 times. It's my favorite word, and I think it ought to be your favorite word. What are the characteristics of grace? Well, let's mention a few. Number one, grace is an attribute of God. Peter calls Him in 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace. You see, all grace comes from God because grace is part of His very nature. That's why David calls Him in Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious. See, the Lord doesn't just do acts of grace. That's the way He is. When He makes you rich at Christ's expense, He's just being Himself. And that explains why He doesn't just give us something. He gives us Himself. Because that's His nature. Grace is an attribute of God. Second characteristic of grace. Grace is personal. You see, grace doesn't just come in a nice gift-wrapped package. Grace comes in a person. John 1.17 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace is personal. That's why I love what the writer of Hebrews says says in Hebrews four fifteen and 16, he says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to what? The throne of grace that we may find mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. You see, we don't have an impersonal God. He has walked in your shoes. He knows your weaknesses because he has felt them and he has paid for them. And so when you draw near, you are not drawing near to an intimidating throne of law. You are drawing near to the throne of grace. The throne of God's riches at Christ's expense. And what do we find every time we draw near to that throne? We find grace. When we come to the throne, we find in Revelation 7.17 that at the center of the throne is the Lamb standing as if slain. Still bearing the scars of Calvary, still bearing the scars that grace cost. Grace is personal. Third characteristic, grace is eternal. God has always acted in grace. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, a lot of people think that God acted one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. The truth is, God has always acted in grace toward people. Genesis 6.8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham was chosen by grace. God has always acted in grace and He always will because grace is eternal. Fourth characteristic, grace is limitless. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you know what it says two verses later? It says, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. How much grace do you think Jesus is filled up with? How much grace do you think he has? Well, whatever your answer is, John tells us we have all received that same fullness. And then he adds this, and grace upon grace. Grace on top of grace. Grace overlapping grace. We got to go to Florida this summer on vacation and we, had these, we borrowed these little short chairs. Have you seen these? They're little lawn chairs, but they're short. So you can sit down right on the edge of the ocean and the waves can come in and come over you. And I notice watching the waves, that the waves come in, waves come in and one wave hits you and before that wave has totally subsided, another wave comes in and hits you. And you never have to turn to your family and say, kids, I think that's the last one. You know, that's the way it is with grace. We get more than we need And it just keeps coming. It's limitless. Paul says in Romans 5.17, it's the abundance of grace. He calls it in 2 Corinthians 9.14, surpassing grace of God. In Ephesians 1.7, he calls it the riches of His grace. Listen to the adjectives in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God's grace is limitless. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. Grace is my favorite word. This very well be, may be my favorite verse. Ephesians 2.7 says, In order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Grace is not just something God sh- has shown us in the past. Grace is something He's going to show us in the future. People often ask me, well, what is heaven going to be like? Well, this verse tells me that heaven is going to have ages. And in those ages, God is going to be showing us more and more of His grace. And He's not just going to write it on a chalkboard. He's going to show it to us in kindness toward us. So that tells me we're going to enter an age and God's going to say, let me shower my grace on you. And then at the end of that age, he's going to say, have you got that? And we're going to say, yeah, even though we probably haven't. And God's going to move us to the next age, and he's going to say, let me show you some more grace and kindness towards you. And that's going to be what heaven is going to be like. We are going to spend eternity learning and experiencing the grace of God. And when we have been there 10,000 years, it will still be surpassing grace. Because grace is limitless. Fifth characteristic. Grace is free. Romans 3.24 says we are justified freely by His grace. You don't work for it. You can't earn it. It's a gift. Grace is unconditional. That means you can't do anything to make God show you more grace. You can't do anything... To make God love you more. In fact, listen carefully, you can't do anything to even make God like you more. You see, you are under grace, and grace is free. You guys got your windows down? Get mine. You know, it's the fact that we don't understand that grace is free, I think that causes many of us to struggle with a consistent quiet time. Because what do we do? We carve out a time, we say, that's my quiet time, and we start out good, and then after a while, it becomes a duty. After a while, it becomes legalistic. And we find ourselves going into our quiet time, and we punch our punch card, and we say, now God owes me something. Let me tell you something. God likes you just as much on the day you don't have a quiet time as He does on the day that you do. God likes you just as much on your good days as He does on your bad days. You see, God's grace is showered on you free. And that's the nature of grace. That's why you can't sit down and calculate grace. The mathematics of grace never add up. Why does the shepherd leave the 99 and go after the one lost sheep? Why does the widow who gives two pennies give more than all the rich people? Why in Jesus' parable in Matthew 20 do the people who are hired in the 11th hour get the same amount as the ones who worked all day. Why are we told to forgive our brother 70 times 7 times? Well, that's grace. It doesn't add up. Because grace is free. And then let me add a sixth characteristic. Grace is not automatic. You see, even though it's an attribute of God, even though it's personal and eternal and limitless and free many people are missing out on the fullness of God's grace. And I found four things that the Bible says will hinder grace. Four grace blockers. Number one is bitterness. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. One of the things that hinders the grace of God in your life is when you allow bitterness to build up. Perhaps it's bitterness toward other people, perhaps even it's bitterness toward God. When that bitterness takes root in your life, it cuts off the flow of grace. Bitterness and resentment is a grace blocker. But I found the second one, and that's pride. James 4 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace. To the humble. When you and I get filled with pride and think, I can do this on my own. I don't need God. I have plenty of strength and plenty of knowledge and plenty of ability. That's when the grace of God is frustrated in our lives. You see, grace flows through a humble heart. So pride is a grace blocker. But there's a third one, and that's legalism. And I want you to look at this verse. It's Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 because it's a verse that many people have gotten confused on and misled by. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. It says, You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen... From grace. Now many people interpret that phrase, you have fallen from grace, to mean you were once saved and you stumbled into sin and you lost your salvation. But that's not what that phrase means. Because who is Paul talking about when he says you have fallen from grace? Well, he says in the phrase right before that, he says, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You see, the person who is trying to work his way to heaven is the one who has fallen from grace. You do not fall from grace into sin. You fall from grace into legalism. You fall from grace into trying to earn your salvation. Romans 11.6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace." Grace and works don't mix. They're like oil and water. And if you add works to grace, Paul says it's no longer grace. Legalism is a grace blocker. In fact, I would say legalism is a grace buster. And then fourthly, fourth grace blocker is a lack of spiritual understanding. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 to 14, Paul highlights all the spiritual blessings that we have. And he keeps saying over and over there, it's according to the riches of His grace. It's to the praise of the glory of His grace. All these spiritual riches are because of God's grace. And then if you read down in that chapter, you come to verse 18, and Paul prays in verse 18 that the eyes of your understanding might be opened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance. Paul says, here's how rich you are. Here's how rich God's grace has made you. Now I pray that you'll really understand how rich you are. You see, the riches of God's grace are ours. They're in our account. We just need to transfer them from our head to our heart. We need to understand them. Some of us aren't enjoying the fullness of God's grace because our spiritual eyes are closed and we don't understand all that we have in Christ. I heard about a man whose big goal in life was to go on a luxury cruise. And since he didn't have much money, he spent years saving and sacrificing and counting pennies until he could finally afford the cruise ticket. He came home from the travel agent clutching his ticket and a color cruise brochure. He could hardly believe that he was about to fulfill his childhood dream. But you know, as he looked at the elegant food pictured in the brochure, he knew he could never afford that. And so as he packed for the cruise, he packed a week's supply of bread and peanut butter. And on the cruise, he sat idly and watched as other people headed for the buffet at mealtime. And he drooled as the porter would go by carrying trays of food for people who had ordered room service. And then quietly, he would slip back to his room for another peanut butter sandwich. At the end of the week, when he got off the ship, the crew was there saying goodbye to the passengers. And the captain shook his hand and asked him how he enjoyed the cruise. And he said, everything was great, but I just wish I could have afforded the food. And the captain said, didn't you know meals are included in your ticket? You could have eaten as much as you like. You know, a lot of Christians are like that. They munch on stale scraps when they have no reason to live like that. Everything has been included in the cost of admission and Jesus Christ has already paid that price. Now let me remind you this morning what the benefits of grace are. Number one, we're saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Now that's fundamental, that's foundational. God has taken you from where you were, lost, condemned, hell-bound, And He has found you, forgiven you, accepted you, made you His child, and assured you of heaven. And none of that has anything to do with your efforts. It's all by God's grace. We're saved by grace. Secondly, we grow by grace. Paul tells us in 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, you grow... In grace. That's the only fertile soil that will give you the nutrients for spiritual growth. The more you rely on God's grace, the more you're going to grow. And this is where a lot of Christians get their wires crossed. They understand that they're saved by faith and then they think they're going to live the Christian life by works. They think they enter the family of God one way and then they continue another way. And that leads to all kinds of problems. Paul told us in Colossians 2.6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. The way you became a Christian, you are to continue in the Christian life. Now how did you get saved? By grace through faith. So how do you continue in the Christian life? By grace through faith. Listen to Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 15:10. He says, "By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me." Was there a change in Paul's life? I'll say he went from a persecutor to an apostle. He went from a Christian killer that people looked at and said that man is hopeless to the guy who accomplished more than anybody else for Christ. And how did he do it? What brought about the change? Paul says it wasn't me working. It was the grace of God in me. You see, that's where growth comes from. Every Christian should be able to say three things. Number one, by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. Number two, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, that's not bragging because God did the change. And third, by the grace of God, I'm not what I'm going to be because God's not finished with me yet. You see, we grow by grace. Third, we overcome temptation and sin by grace. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. I want you to see this verse. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Did you catch that? What teaches us to say no to temptation and sin? It's the grace of God. Now that doesn't sound like the grace I hear a lot of Christians talk about. Some people say you can live any way you want to because God's going to forgive you anyway. I know it's wrong to walk out on my wife and marry this other woman, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know that God will forgive me. See that's what Jude calls in Jude 4 turning the grace of God into a license for immorality. That's greasy grace and that's not the grace of God. You see the grace of God has power. It overcomes sin. It transforms you and I into the image of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2:13 for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's a great verse. That tells me God not only tells you what to do, He gives you the desire to do it, but He doesn't stop there. He not only tells you what to do, gives you the desire to do it, then He gives you the power to fulfill the desire. You see, that's grace. We overcome temptation and sin by grace. And then fourth, we can handle trials by grace. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how he had unique visions from the Lord and how to keep him from being filled with pride, the Lord gave him a thorn in his flesh, some kind of physical trial. And when Paul asked God to take the thorn away, here was God's answer in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God's grace is sufficient whatever you're going through. A financial problem, a marriage problem, a health problem. You can handle any circumstance with the grace of God. Because you see, the paradox of grace is that the more you realize your weakness, the more you will realize His strength. You see, no one is too weak to experience the grace of God, but some people are too strong. And I don't know everything about thorns in the flesh. And I can't even tell you exactly what Paul's is, and maybe that's the way God wanted it so that we could relate no matter what our thorn may be. I can't tell you everything about thorns in the flesh, but I can tell you that God would rather I have an occasional limp than a perpetual strut. Bill Russell was a great basketball center for the Boston Celtics. sports writer once asked him if he got nervous before a game. He said, yes, before every game I vomit. The sports writer was a little surprised, so he said, well, what do you do when you have two games on the same day? He said, I vomit twice. You know, that's the way we should respond to trials. When trials come, we should be weak and humble. In fact, that's what they're designed for. They're designed to keep us realizing that we are weak and to keep us humble because that's where grace is at its best. Why is it that some people grow through trials and some people don't? Why is it that some people get bitter and some people get better? Why is it for some people they're stumbling blocks and for others they're stepping stones? It's an issue of whether they use the grace of God. You see, trials do not automatically mature you. I know a lot of people who have gone through a lot of trials and they're still spiritual midgets because they don't rely on the grace of God. You see, those trials are designed to drive you to the throne of grace where Hebrews 4.16 says we find grace to help in time of need. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. 1 Peter 1.6 Peter talks about our great salvation, and then he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And that word various is an interesting Greek word. It means multicolored. You have been distressed by multicolored trials. And then I want you to turn over a few pages to 1 Peter 4.10 because Peter uses this same Greek word again in 1 Peter 4.10. And I just want you to notice the end of that verse where he says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold, that's that same word again. What's he telling us? You have multicolored trials and God has multicolored grace. So God has multicolored grace to be sufficient for all of the multicolored trials that you go through. Isn't that good? We can handle trials by grace. Fifth thing, fifth benefit of grace. We accomplish ministry by grace. You know, sometimes we think, well, that guy's doing this great ministry. He's accomplishing these things for God. He's, he gets a lot of credit for that. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And then a chapter later in Ephesians 4, 7, speaking of spiritual gifts, he says, To each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, God calls me into ministry by grace. And then He gives me the spiritual tools I need to do it by grace. And then when you add to that what Paul said about his ministry in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. You see, you realize it's all grace. God calls people who don't deserve it, He provides the spiritual gifts for us to use, and then He produces the fruit. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says, Does He then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Is it by works or is it by faith? Is it by law or is it by grace? When God works a miracle in your life or through you in the life of someone else and you stop and say, that is a God thing, did God do that for you because you deserve it? No. You see, when you find yourself saying that's a God thing, you better also say, that's a grace thing. Why does God answer your prayers? Because you deserve it? No. He answers your prayers because of grace. All that we accomplish in ministry is because of God's grace. And then sixth, and finally, we are kept by grace. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What God starts, God finishes. He doesn't take us out on a limb in order to cut it off. That's why Jude finishes his short letter with this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy... To Him be the glory and majesty and dominion and authority forever. See, God not only saves you by grace and grows you by grace and uses you by grace, He keeps you by grace. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he tried to hide his sin until Nathan confronted him. And it brought him to his knees. Now you would think that if any sin could make you lose your salvation, it would be adultery. But I love what David says in Psalm 51, 12. He confesses his sin to God and then he says this, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. David doesn't ask for his salvation back. He asks for the joy of his salvation because that's what he lost. And David doesn't call it my salvation. He calls it, your salvation, because it's all God's doing. It's His salvation. It's His grace. And He's accomplished it in me, and He will get all the glory for it forever. We are kept by grace. So when you read Romans 6.14, and it says you are under grace, it means you're saved by it, you grow by it, You overcome temptation and sin by it. You handle trials by it. You accomplish ministry by it. And you are kept by it. No wonder the hymn writer calls it amazing. Let's not go back and settle for peanut butter sandwiches. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for this opportunity just to take a moment and look at your grace. And Father, we realize that we're not beginning to grasp it all. But Father, I pray what we have talked about this morning would move to the eyes of our understanding so that it would be more than something we know in our head, but something we realize by faith in our hearts. And Father, I pray that it would change the way we walk with you as we walk under the blessing of your grace as your children. And we thank you for that privilege in Jesus' name. Amen.